But as you remember, I said that the chapters didn't come along until about the 16th century. So there is a, another section that he deals with here in, in chapter 3, which is considered part of the body of the letter. But it's kind of weird because when he starts out these first six verses, it's almost like somebody interrupted him or he took a break from writing his letter because the first six verses are kind of a transition from one discussion of the day of the Lord to, hey, you've got this problem. And both of these were things that he talked about in his first letter to the church at Thessalonica. They just had questions about his first letter and um, some misinterpretations, and so he's trying to uh, express a more uh, thoughtful answer to them. So, uh, let's look at chapter 3, verse 1, where he gets this running start into the next issue. Verse 1, it says, In addition, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may be spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. Remember that he spent maybe three plus weeks in Thessalonia. Like, that was it. The church got started by uh, some salvation of women first and then family. And it says, And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not all have faith. Kevin, this is exactly what you were uh, asking us to pray for, is we're going to live in a world as believers where there's wickedness and evil. Where it's a fallen world. Uh before Genesis chapter 3, it was perfect. Genesis 3, the fall of man, Adam and Eve happened, and everything began, death entered the world. Evil enter, entered the world, wickedness entered the world, and you chase it all throughout the Scripture, all 66 books. Eventually, it will become perfect again. It will become perfect again, but right now we live in a fallen world and so because of that, there will be suffering. Jesus says you will suffer. You will suffer in a fallen world. It says, uh, verse 3, But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. We pray that all the time. We have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and Christ's endurance. So uh, that, that was kind of his, ooh, I've said this a couple times in his letter, Paul has this tendency to encourage yet at the same time uh, exhort them to continue in that same pattern. Hey, you guys are doing good and I want to remind you that you're doing good and that you'll continue doing good. He keeps saying these things not only as a way of rejoicing about them and giving thanksgiving for them, but to also encourage them to continue in their walk. And that's basically what he did there. Now we get to the, the, the issue that he's dealing with, and he's warning them about this uh, kind of what we would call irresponsible behavior. And when I talk about behavior... Uh, I have behavior, you have behavior, and I try not to look at your behavior. Please don't look at my behavior. Does that make sense? Because what I do is not who I am. 
who I am is I'm holy, I'm redeemed, my soul and my spirit has been redeemed by Jesus Christ on the cross. That and me understanding that, understanding that I have been redeemed, that I've been forgiven, that I'm a, a prince to the, the throne, I, I have all the things that are his or mine, all these things. If I come to understand that, it greatly impacts my behavior. But don't look at me for my behavior. Because sometimes I make bad choices and I act out of my own selfishness and my own flesh and my behavior will be corrupt. And this is really what he's trying to address here is there, the, corruptness, the corruptness of our behavior uh, typically comes from flesh patterns that we've established in the past. And so he's trying to correct them in their flesh patterns. So he's warned the church, and think about this, he warned them when he came to Thessalonia uh, the first time. He's on his second missionary trip. He spent three weeks there, and he was talking to them about the end times and that Jesus was coming back, and they really thought Jesus was coming back right away. And he basically warned them to keep working, keep doing things. Just because Jesus coming back doesn't mean that we quit our jobs. So the, the moment that he was there and teaching them, he told them to, to work hard to be representative of Christ. Then later on, he writes this letter in 1 Thessalonians. The 1 Thessalonians, he writes that letter, and he warns them again in his first letter, hey, you need to continue to work. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 Verse 11 says this, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. He says, as we commanded you, when I was there visiting you, I commanded you to work with your hands. Now I'm writing this first letter, and I'm telling you again, you need to continue to work. He says, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent upon anyone. Now, he's writing a second letter, and this is the third time he's telling these people to work. You need to go to work. And this is what he says. Verse 6. Now, we command, we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother and sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. What did he just say? Stay away from those who aren't working. Like, isolate them. Hmm. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. When we were with you, we told you to do this. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle, they are not busy, but busy bodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus and provide for themselves. 
But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction, our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him. That's pretty harsh. So that he may be ashamed. So that he may be ashamed. Yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Wow. Uh, see why I said I'm glad to be done with First uh, and Second Thessalonians? It seems kind of harsh. Uh, but there's this word, there's this Greek word. I had to look it up. Attacked. A-T-A-K-T. Attacked. And it's a word that describes these people. He uses it three times. He used it in verse 6, he used it in verse 7, and he used it in verse 11. And here's the primary meaning of the word attacked. I'll read it to you. It says, uh, the primary meaning of the word has to do with people who are disorderly or unruly. I know as I read this to you, you're going to think about today. You're going to think about our world today. Keep this in the context of what's happening right here in 52 A.D. You're going to jump to today. I get it. The primary meaning of that word has to do with people who are disorderly or unruly. So it refers to, in the context of military officers, to soldiers who do not obey their commands, to officers who neglect their duties, or to an army that's in disarray. And in a non-military context, the word is used to describe people who don't follow the rules of proper conduct in the ancient gymnasium or sons who don't help out their parents financially or apprentices who miss work or fail to live up to the requirements of their contract. So when you look at all the different contexts that this word is used in, you end up with the meaning of, again, disorderly, or unruly, or insubordinate. That's the primary meaning of that word, attacked, which he's used in three verses. Now, there is also a secondary meaning to this word, attacked, that Paul uses. And it's the Greek word. It means to be idle. Those who are lazy. And that translation is supported by the context of Paul's paragraph. For instance, this would explain why Paul is appealing to them, saying, look, we've been an example of one who's self-sufficient in our work. It would also explain in verse 10 why Paul appeals to his teaching about being self-sufficient. So, if you take the meaning of the primary meaning and the secondary meaning you can really come up with rebellious idlers. People who are actually choosing to be idle out of a rebellious stage. That's what he is talking about. Uh, on the one hand, some in the church were clearly not working and were taking advantage of the love and the generosity of fellow members that were remaining idle. They were looking for people to support them and to help them. On the other hand, this third time that Paul has addressed the matter, 
the Eilers have refused to obey Paul. He's like, you're in opposition of what we're trying to teach you and what we have said to you. You are being rebellious not only to the church, but you're being rebellious to our teaching. Now, as we looked at those verses, 6 through uh, verse 15, he broke it down into five different sections. That first paragraph in verse 6, it's the opening. He's like, avoid these idlers. Then the second paragraph, verses 7 and 9, he's saying, hey, we're the example the example of self-sufficient work. The third paragraph, verse 10, Paul's teaching again on the importance of being self-sufficient. Verse 4, or verses 11 and 12 is the fourth paragraph, and Paul's like, I'm implying myself as an example to you. Imitate me. And then the last part, verses 13 through 15, and were really his closing commands and he's echoing the first thing that he said is avoid the idlers. So it's interesting that he says, here's the problem, look at us. Here's the problem, look at us. Here's the problem, avoid it. It's basically what Paul has done in this. Now, what you have just read and what I have just read to you about avoiding the idlers would come across as another definition of church discipline. Church discipline. Oh, you know, growing up, uh, we've we've seen. I've seen church discipline good. I've seen church discipline bad. If you know what I mean. Uh, this what Paul's saying right here is another word for excommunicating, like cutting them off. You're no longer a part of us. Go away. We don't want you associated with us. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen that in the church? Uh, Thessalonians have lived in a very strong communal culture. They believed in doing things together and working together. And so I'm going to tell you what Paul is saying here when he used the word that they should be ashamed, that they put shame on them. In that context, in that time, shame was a way that they used to discipline people. Like if community was really, really strong and you were set aside and shame was put on you, it would cause you to think about your behavior. Like you go over there in the corner and think about it. It's really what it was saying. And that was the context of what, and, and you think about the, the different, just how discipline changes throughout the year. Like if you go to Japan and you dishonor your family, uh, it was expected that you would commit suicide, that you would kill yourself. That was their form of discipline. When I was a child in elementary school and I did something wrong, I got swats. Anybody else get swats when you were in school? Mm-hmm. Now, swatting in school, it doesn't happen because it's abuse. What I'm saying is this, the context of the discipline has changed from society and over the years. And so reading this in context, the shame was the way that they dealt with things back in Thessalonica. 
the question is, how would the church today deal with rebellious idlers? What do you think? I'm asking you a question. How do you think the church today would deal with rebellious idlers? What? They don't. Why not? Okay. Yeah, I say that all the time. You know, the only thing I can really do is pray for them. Uh, yeah, what do you say, Luke? Right. Yeah, for sure, for sure, especially as the as old as you are, uh, you've experienced you you experienced different stages. I mean, I'm the same way. I've experienced different stage, stages of how the church deals with things. They deal with it, you know, bring them down front to the, you know, in front of the whole church and and what else? But now, yeah, what do you say, Mike? You throwing something in? Anybody else? Got an idea of what to do with rebellious idlers? I mean, you think, uh, you have to ask yourself, what, what's the purpose of church discipline? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take our name, Levener, uh, and try to explain it to you. Uh, if you take the word leaven, which you guys know our definition of leaven. It's the change agent in a dough product that causes it to rise and transform while it's in a state of rest, which is what Christ did. He raised us from the dead. He transformed us. And now we just rest in Him. So leavener, and in this sense, is just a definition of a word. It's neither good or bad. It's neutral. But in the Scripture, you can see where leaven is used in both bad in good ways. Like you have the leaven of the Pharisees and then you have the leaven of the lady who was like, you know, doing good things. And uh, so leaven is a neutral thing. But you know what leaven does. If you put leaven in a lump of dough, it causes it to rise because what happens is the leaven begins to spread through the flour and the water and the dough and it infects Infects the infects or affects effects the whole dough, right? That's what leaven does. Like this community can have an incredible effect on the bigger community if 
if the leaven, if you get the identity thing, the purpose thing, and everything else, and you go from here and you go out, you are the leaven of the world in a positive way. But if you're a rebellious idler or you're doing something that is like, you know, against society or whatever, uh, I think you've heard me say from here many times, there's two areas that I'm going to protect inside this ministry. I'm going to protect that area back there. We checked all the kids' temperatures and everything back there and the leaders' temperatures, and we're going to protect that area where the kids are. We're going to protect that area. That's important. And we're going to protect this stage, what comes from this stage. There may be things that are in error that come from this stage, but we will talk about that and we will process that. But I'll protect this stage, what comes from this stage, what message comes from this stage. Because I want that message to be aligned with what we believe in the 66 books, that they all work together, that all make sense together and everything else. And if I bring a guest speaker in like we did at camp, we brought in camp and he said things a little bit different. He said things a lot different. And our kids started throwing flags, our adults started flags, and we talked about it and we processed it. And so it's the same, it's the same concept here. Church discipline is the same thing. If someone begins to affect our group, I'm probably going to ask them to step aside. And trust me, it's happened. It's happened. Uh, my, I think one of the things that uh, my personal, I get asked all the time about my opinion and my thoughts and everything else. I am not, I have one agenda. I have one agenda, Jesus. That's it. That's my agenda. Any other agenda? Nah, not doing it. I'm not agenda driven. If it's Jesus, I'm all for it. Anything else? I don't care if it's good. I don't care if it's great. I'm not about the agenda. So if you come at me with an agenda, I'm probably just going to listen to you. And like, if that's where the Spirit's leading, you go for it. But if that agenda begins to affect the Jesus agenda, I'm going to ask you to step aside. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to put you up on stage. I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you to like step aside. That's, again, I'll protect the stage what is spoken up here and, and things like that. And I've... I've taken the hits. Our elders have taken the hits for it. I'm okay with that. But I think that this is what Paul's saying here is like, because it, the agendas can impact your ministry. It can impact the way people see you. It can impact the way the message that's coming out. Uh, and, you know, we're pretty, pretty grace-driven. Pretty grace-driven. And I think what Paul's saying here too is he's like, He's saying, uh, don't just like push them away and don't have anything to do with them. Continue to love them. But don't let them continue to ruin this whole batch of dough. That's really what he's saying here. You, you, you good on church discipline? What he's, what he's, questions or comments or, I mean, I'll open it up to you. Even talking about what we do here. I don't, I don't do too much public. Yeah, what are you gonna say, Luke? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Right. You don't. Would you like to come up here and finish this message? <laughs> I love you, Luke. It's a good word what you just said. Is like, yeah, it, it, you know, just take the, the whole mask thing, for instance. Well, what do I deal with? Well, I, I've got people that are the mask police and want to know how what percentage of people in the room are wearing masks and are they eating coffee and donuts and are you obeying the rules and da-da-da-da-da as people are putting their masks on. <laughs> and, and then I've got the other people are going, that's just bunk. These masks are stupid. We don't need to be wearing masks. So I've got this side and I've got this side and I'm just like going, yep, I hear you. You know, and, and that's where, and not just me, it's all pastors are dealing with this. That's just one issue. That's, that's just one issue. You know, and it, it's a crazy issue, but uh, I think this, Paul's trying to and being examine yourself, but he also says, imitate me. And literally, when he, he's, he's saying, he says, imitate us, who's he talking about? Imitate us. He's talking about imitating God. He's talking about imitating Jesus. He's talking about Holy Spirit. He's talking about Paul. He's talking about Timothy. He's talking about Silas. He's like, imitate us. We're not perfect in our behavior, but we're perfect in our soul and our spirit. And we're going to follow the spirit. And this, you know, think think about this. Paul's like saying, Paul's like saying, uh, go out, don't be idle, uh, go work, make a living for yourself. Think think about Paul for a second. Think about it. He's a Jew. He's a Pharisee. He has money. He comes from a rich Jewish family. He studied under Gamaliel. He, that, the dude, he was well off. Right? Did you forget that? But what is he doing on his second missionary journey with Priscilla and Aquila? 
He's making tents. Like I need a job and I need to provide for myself. Why is he doing that? He's saying it's important to work in the community. It's a big deal for him. It's pretty crazy to think about it, but that's exactly what Paul does. He definitely comes from that. You know, in that society, they, had, they didn't have a middle class. Middle class didn't really come along until the last couple of centuries. But there was an upper class and there was a lower class. Paul came from upper class, but he put himself in the lower class, even as he says in the Corinthians, be all things to all people. How do I reach these people? I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there and do a job with them. I'm going to do it. You know, the, and then you look at me and go, well, what's your job? <laughs> what do you do? How come you're... Hey, I haven't asked you for a dime. I haven't asked you for a dime. Uh, I don't talk about money. I believe the Lord's taking care of me, and I think that there's a sense of uh, trust among this group of people that have said, hey, just be with the people, study your Bible, and teach us, and uh, minister the people, and be in the community, and love the people in the community, and I am so thankful for the opportunity that God has provided. That uh, I know you give, you give to this ministry without even asking, and I have a salary, and I'm able to uh, be free to do things and to encourage people. And Pinheads has been so good to us that they haven't charged us a dime in 12 years here. That's a God thing. That we can help people. We've helped people through the quarantine. We continue to help people. Uh, it is unreal. It is, it is it's such an adventure. It's so much fun uh, to be able to do what I do, yet at the same time, I deal with this, deal with people. and So you got good and bad. And Paul, Paul's the same way. He probably enjoys making tents. Probably in, enjoys helping people. It's who he is. Uh, let me be clear we, before we get to this final greeting here, though. He... You have to hear exactly what Paul's saying. He's saying in his teaching that he quotes, he doesn't say, if anyone does not work. He's really saying, if anyone is not willing to work. I, I, I hope you hear the difference in that. Paul's not talking about the church members uh, who are unemployed due to illness, injury, or old age, or things like that. In fact, he, as a community in Acts, this is what they did, is they helped each other through that. This is literally for the people that choose not to, that are able to work. So uh, Paul is very gracious to those who are not able to. I, I, I like too that he puts the word if. That's like a conditional clause there. Paul is assuming the, the, the truth of what he's saying if he's ifing here. <laughs> If he's ifing, in other words, Paul is actually assuming that there will in fact be some church members that do this. If this happens, he's literally saying, I get it, it's going to happen. There's going to be people that take advantage of the system. 
And this is why I'm telling you what to do and how to handle it. It's interesting. But then he comes to his final greeting. The last few verses of Thessalonians. He says, may the Lord of peace, there you go Kevin, may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace always in every way. May your peace be His peace. I, I get that you can have peace, but there's even a greater peace than your own created peace. His peace. It says, the Lord be with you all. I have a problem when people pray that. Lord, come be with His Holy Spirit. Show up in this place. Let me tell you something. He was here before I got here this morning. And when you all walked in, you walked in with Him. He's here. I, Paul, am writing this greeting. In other words, somebody else dictated this whole letter for me. They wrote this whole letter for me, but now I've taken this letter and I'm writing this last paragraph with my hand. We believe that Paul had some kind of eye issue or something and that he signed his, real, his name real big like John Hancock because he had some kind of eye disease and he had problems seeing, but he's literally now taking this letter, whoever wrote it now can see that the handwriting is different in this last paragraph. Like, I'm giving authority to this letter. This is from me. He says, I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand, which is an authenticating mark in every letter. I give authority to what has been dictated here. This is how I write. This is what it looks like. It looks like a second grader. I don't know what it looked like. It was probably pretty big. And then verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I, I look at that greeting and I go, here's Paul's emphasis. Paul's emphasis is on Jesus. All these things that I've talked to you about over these last few weeks, stay focused. I got one agenda, it's Jesus. One agenda, it's Jesus. And his other emphasis is on peace. If you can stay focused on Jesus and you have Him, He's in you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. You have peace in you. May His peace be your peace. He's got emphasis on Jesus. He's got emphasis on peace. And then the last thing that He says to them is this, grace, may you, the last word is all, may all of you have grace. Grace comes from salvation. I believe that I'm saved because I believed. I believed that Jesus was the Son of God. That He's my Savior. And when I was eight years old, I received graced salvation. But now, today, every day, literally I'm sitting here in grace as I talk to you. That grace is His ability in me to live my life. He's like, Rusty, I'll speak through you. I'll live your life through you. If you will just submit, if you will just give me the authority in your life, I'll give you grace all day long. Two types of grace. Salvation and daily grace. I'm sure 
out of a common conviction that the same Holy Spirit that inspired Paul to write the Thessalonians so many years ago has indeed been placed in you and given you the same ability to interpret this letter. The same Spirit that caused Paul to write this letter is the same Spirit that lives in you that allows you to read it and to understand it and to interpret it. Lord, I pray that as we read Your Word and we study Your Word, that You would continue to just reveal Yourself to us, that we can examine ourselves, that we can trust Your Word, and just thank You for Paul's life and how he loved the church, how he truly loved the church. May we experience that here in this room today and tonight and throughout this week. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.